morning, guys. Y'all can grab a seat as if you weren't already going to grab a seat when I started talking. How are y'all doing this morning? Yeah? I'm, gonna do, I'm not going to do the sitting thing. I'm going to stand because uh, this feels like a standing morning. Yeah. Uh, good morning. Uh, if we have not met yet, um, wait, before I get started, are there any open seats out there? If you have an open seat, will you raise your hand if there's an open seat next to you? Yeah, give that, yeah. So if you're standing in the back and you need a seat, come to one of these raised hands and they, they've got an open seat for you to come sit down. Awesome. I think that's... Got one up here. Keep, keep those hands held up for just another second. All right, cool. Good morning. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Gentry. I'm a pastoral apprentice here with Josh at Ethos uh, on the pastoral and teaching team here for our Hillsborough Village campus. We are in week three, as Josh mentioned earlier, uh, of this tradition called Advent. And if you don't know what Advent is, don't fear. Uh, you're in good company. Uh, most of us, a lot of us didn't grow up with the Advent tradition, and it's relatively new for a lot of us. Uh, but in Advent, it's like the four weeks leading up to Christmas, the four Sundays mark what the church calls Advent. And each week, you pause to kind of just reflect on four different words or really more biblical themes and really just sit and meditate in those. And so week one, we looked at the hope of Advent, this biblical theme of hope. And week two, love, this biblical theme of love. And then week three, this week, we get to sit and look at the joy of Advent. Growing up, uh, I remember Christmas Eve, December 24th, without a doubt, was always the worst night of sleep that I got the entire year around. Does anyone else kind of agree with that like feeling? Uh, so on Christmas Eve, we would get together with my mom's family. My entire mom's like extended side of the family would hang out together all day long, do all the big fun things. And then that at night, we would go home and me and my siblings, we would exchange gifts. Maybe we'd watch a Christmas movie. And then, you know, we'd set out cookies and milk, maybe go outside and put out some reindeer food. Maybe, you know, if we're feeling really crazy, do a snow dance, hoping for a Nashville white Christmas, which doesn't happen. Uh, and... Then after that, we'd, we'd be sent to bed. And I would remember going to bed on Christmas Eve, and it was always just the worst. I had the worst time falling asleep because I had this joyful anticipation of what was coming the next morning. I knew that I would wake up and that there would be presents under the tree and that the next day was just going to be glorious. And how did I know that? I had no proof, I can't see the future, but I could look back on all of the previous Christmases and know that what has happened in the past, 
I, I can believe is going to happen again. And that's kind of what Advent is like. It's got this looking back at what has been faithful, God's faithfulness and the person of Jesus and what God has done throughout history and the story of scripture and then looking forward to the promise of Christ's return because the character of God is consistent. I remember one year on Christmas Eve, leaving my mom's family's celebration, looking up in the sky and just seeing this red light trailing across the sky. And I was like, guys, we gotta get home now. We gotta get home immediately. And we needed to like rush through. I just felt this entire time, this rush of like wanting to get through our Christmas presents that we did together and all the other stuff so we could get to bed because I didn't want our house to get skipped over by the big man in the red suit that we were all waiting for. And we were just cutting it close. And I knew this because I had seen a sign of his nearness and his evident coming. And that's kind of what Advent is like. Now, I'm not, don't hear me, I'm not saying Santa and Jesus are the same thing. That's not who I'm equating here. What I'm equating is that feeling of joyful anticipation that children have on Christmas Eve. Advent simply means the arrival of someone noteworthy, which in the Christian tradition is Christ. Looking back, we look back to Christ's arrival in the person of Jesus And how does that shape our hope? How does that shape our love? How does that shape our joy? And then we look forward to Christ's promised return. And how does that shape our hope? How does that shape our love and joy? And you're going to feel that looking back, looking forward motion again today, as you probably have the last two weeks that Josh has been up here teaching Over the last couple weeks, Josh has also done a really great job of examining hope and love at like a popular level. Uh, What is our cultural understanding of hope? What is our cultural understanding of love? And then holding up against that, a biblically shaped understanding of hope and love and seeing how these two things compare or contrast. And today, we're going to just kind of follow along with that same trend. What does our culture default tell us? What is our default cultural understanding of joy? And then what does the Bible have to tell us about joy? Uh, If you ask me, I think a pretty great place, if you want to learn what a particular culture and place and time thinks about a certain idea like joy, a dictionary from that place and time is a pretty great way to figure out what they thought about this thing. So Merriam-Webster 2022 defines joy like this. The emo- joy is the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or the prospect of possessing what one desires. So notice, first, Merriam-Webster is off the bat, joy Our cultural understanding is that joy is an emotion. Joy is a feeling that we get. And that feeling is dependent upon well-being, success, and good fortune. Joy is only attainable, Miss Miriam would say, when life is going the way that we would like for it to. 
Over the last month or two, in my just regular interactions with people, I've noticed this just kind of running trend as I talk to people day in and day out. I ask people, you know, how are you? Very normal, common question that we ask people all the time. And if people are willing to be real with me, a lot of the times, the answer I get that I've gotten a lot, that I've noticed this trend is, honestly, I'm just, I'm just dealing with a lot of anxiety right now. Or maybe just like, fine, you know? And I don't know that I can count one time in the recent past where someone, I've said, hey, like, hey dude, how you doing? And someone has been like, oh man, I am just joyful over the way that life is going for me right now. Everything is like better than I even could have dreamed, actually. Uh, that's just not typically how things go. And it could be really easy for me to stand up here and beat up on that. But really, as I was writing this out, I was like, that, that's fair. We have a lot of family members here that are going through real stuff. Life is full of suffering and pain and heartache. Life is hard. Life tends to not go how we plan. It tends to beat us down and then kick us again while we're down from the beating that life has given us. A global pandemic. A, not, a less than ideal economy. Four cars broken down in four months. A loss of investment. Death of a family member and another with cancer. Pain inflicted by those close to us. Those are all real examples from people in this church family. So I don't hear a lot of people speaking about how just joyful they are with the way life seems to be going. Because on a societal level, we tend to conflate joy with happiness. And if I'm not experiencing some high level of success or gratification, then I'm not happy. And I'm definitely not ecstatic or joyful because I'm in despair, like I'm grieved, I'm troubled. Maybe that's not you, and I'm being like way too emo for you, and you're just like, man, life, life is fine. Like, it's okay, gen honestly, gentry. Uh, and, but maybe if that's you, you still wouldn't necessarily use joyful as the word to describe your life or your relative demeanor that you walk around with all of the time. As you might expect from my intro, Scripture has a pretty different picture to paint for us of what joy is and how one comes across joy than America might tell us. If you, want, if you have a Bible and you want to turn with me, the first place we're going to stop in Scripture is the very end of the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 24. So where we're picking up, whoop, I put my hand on the mic, that was, that was my fault. Uh, where we're picking up is the very end of the Gospel of Luke, and so Jesus has, he was arrested, crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, 
a few paragraphs before, he's appeared to his disciples having been resurrected. And then this is how Luke ends his gospel. So Luke chapter 24, verse 50. And then he, Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. He blessed them and then he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing his name, blessing God. Really? So Jesus appears after leaving once already. He comes back, you know, so he was arrested and killed, sad. He's resurrected, shows back up to his friends, yay, and then he leaves again, just like whisked up into the air. Bye. The, I, like this whirlwind of emotions that I'm sure was going on here. And as you're reading, you also sense, and if you're new to the story, that might seem like a strange and backwards response from the disciples to then leave that moment with great joy. It doesn't make sense to our natural human instincts of when someone that we love leaves, let again for a second time. Uh, that's not what we expect to read, you know? If you're unfamiliar with the story, you might more expect to read that they left and they were sad or they were angry or they were disheartened that Jesus had left again. So why did the disciples leave with great joy, this seemingly unnatural response to the situation? Here's my current thought. Because biblical joy is not tied to the emotions of circumstance. I, we see this clearly in Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul has this well-known line, always sorrowful, or as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. The entire paragraph before this verse, Paul is speaking, been speaking about all of the afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger that he and his team have been experiencing. And that's not an exaggeration. That was copy and paste the things that Paul is talking about his team has experienced. All of this hard, all of these hard circumstances. And then he follows it up at the end of the paragraph with as always sorrow, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. So Paul's joy was obviously not based on circumstance. It was rooted in something much deeper. But notice, I, I want to make sure we hit this. Notice Paul doesn't say, shove down your sorrow or ignore your sorrow, run away from it, hide from it, or just like put a mask on and act like it's not there. No, he says he is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, holding these two things in tandem. There's something that Paul possesses that allows him to have this unshakable joy even when he is deeply sad. 
I recently had the privilege to observe a very real example of this last week in our church family. Last Wednesday, the Ethos staff had a luncheon for a pastor of our church family who we're sending off. He's been a part of this church family for over a decade. And we spent an entire lunch of people just like blessing him, sharing stories, laughing and crying. And this is, he's grown to become like family with so many people on our staff and in our church family, like real like blood family level bonds. And at the end of that lunch, with tears streaming down his face, he expressed to the staff that he served alongside of for 10 years, this deep sadness that he has at leaving this family, that he described as a deep well of sadness. But then he expressed that at the same time, he has this profound joy and excitement for what God has in store for him and his family to go share the gospel in another place. And knowing this man, I know that he is only able to hold those two things simultaneously because he has the same thing that Paul had. It's hope. The joy of the New Testament, the joy of following Jesus is inseparably linked to the hope of the gospel that was made possible by the love of Jesus. It's a hope that's not a circumstantial, like fingers crossed kind of hope like Josh talked about two weeks ago. The hope of the Bible is not like, oh man, I really hope that happens, that'd be great, but it is concrete and rooted in the person of Jesus and in the character and promises of God. It's that looking back and looking forward hope of Advent, that Christ has come and Christ will come again. Tim Mackey in the Bi- from the Bible Project in their video on Advent joy, he says this, this is one of their lines from that video, joy is an attitude God's people adopt, not because of circumstance, but because of their hope in God's love and promise. The joy of God's people is not determined by their struggles, but by their future destiny. What is that future destiny? Christ is coming back. That's the hope. That's the future destiny. That is where the joy is rooted. We've looked at this verse a couple times already through our journey of Advent here, but the beginning of Revelation 21, verses one through four, and then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and then I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, from God prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes 
and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Church, please hear me. If you are Christ's, that is for you. That is your future hope and your future destiny. A few, just a little bit before this passage, earlier in Revelation, there's a section that's known as the marriage supper of the Lamb. This beautiful way of speaking about Christ, the Lamb, and the church, his bride, coming together at the return of Christ as a married couple in union with each other. So Christ and his bride, the church, you sitting here will be on the day that he returns. And if you are in Christ, if he is your Lord, you have a seat at that wedding table. You've got a little placard with your name on it and a seat at the table. Christ is coming back for his people. He's coming back to set things right. He's coming back to wipe away tears, to heal sickness and death and pain, but he's also coming back because he loves you. And last week, at the 9 and the 11, we, we got to see Clay and Nick declare this in their own lives as they stepped into the waters of baptism. They said, Jesus, my full allegiance is to you. They committed to a life of repentance, of walking, continually turning back to God, turning away from what is false and following Jesus. They said, Jesus, my hope is in you. True joy comes from rejoicing and delighting in what is good and true. And there is nothing more good or more true than the concrete hope of Christ and his return. The hope of the gospel and the love of Christ is what affords us the unshakable joy that we see in the New Testament. It's why Paul can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. It's why our brother that we just commissioned overseas can hold deep sorrow and yet remain joyful. And if you wanna know something else about uh, the brother that we just sent off, he is one of, if not the most hopeful and joyful men for the return of Christ that I've ever met. <laughs> That's right. Because it's not a story to him. It's a reality. It's not a fingers crossed, I hope Jesus comes back, wouldn't that be awesome? It is no Jesus, my hope is Jesus is coming back and it will be awesome. This is why the disciples in Luke 24 left with great joy. They had seen the power of the resurrection of Christ and they knew because he told them that he would return. What carries the joy of the New Testament is the hope and the certainty of Christ's love 
and that he would return for his people, for his bride. In Romans 12, 12, Paul gives this instruction. He says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be consistent in prayer. Again, with Paul, we see this tension, right? Be patient in tribulation and rejoice in hope held out next to each other. And the people he was writing to, the first century church was no stranger to tribulation, where that word could also just mean like trouble, distress, oppression, pressure, like the weight of life and everything around crushing down on you. He's writing to the church in the capital city of a Roman empire that hates Christianity. So this church was probably no stranger to hardship. But notice, he holds these two things together, but what precedes patience and tribulation is rejoicing in hope. And I don't think that was unintentional on Paul's part. Rejoicing in hope affords us patience and tribulation Because through the lens of Christ's return, our current struggles are of no real consequence and our earthly treasures that American values or TikTok or whatever else wants to tell us bring us great joy are laughable in comparison to the glory that awaits the bride of Christ. Our joy is not tethered to circumstance or well-being or success or good fortune. Our joy is tethered to Christ and walking with him. Our joy is not wavering like our emotions, but is steadfast because Christ is steadfast. Our joy is the knowledge, hope, and assurance that that we will one day see Christ face to face. Family, ethos, Hillsborough Village. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. For Christ is coming back. I know many of you have had a tough year or years, seasons. Many of you are in the midst of heavy stuff currently. There's plenty to be grieved by. Your church family is here to walk with you in those seasons. But let us, in spite of that, rejoice in hope. Let us as a family choose to rejoice in the hope of what Christ has done, what he is doing, and what he will do not to hide or shove down or run away from the hard and sad things of life, but to rejoice in spite of them. I believe that the enemy would love nothing more than to see Christ's bride robbed of her joy. So let's not let that happen, but let's rejoice in hope. May that hope give you patience and tribulation because we can see 
the glory that outshines the darkness on the horizon. And then Paul in Romans 12, 12, he, he ends with, he follows up those two statements with be consistent in prayer. Earlier in Luke 24, Jesus had instructed his disciples to wait in Jerusalem. And you see in the continuation of this story from Luke 24 in Acts 1, if you're new to the Bible, that's confusing, I'm sorry. Um, In Acts 1, you see that the disciples, they do, they return to Jerusalem and there they devote themselves to prayer. And then the next chapter is Pentecost and the Holy Spirit fills the church. And there's this big move of God. Peter preaches the first sermon, 3,000 people come to Christ, all of that. The hope and the joy of Advent, of Christ's return, should be fuel for our prayer life. Fuel that makes our prayer life burn longer and brighter than any other fuel for prayer probably could. The hope and joy of Advent keep us coming back to prayer because it's just so sweet, like Trace Leches from Chewies or <laughs> something that you just can't turn down. It's too good to be true. It should put real power and authority behind our prayer because there is assurance in the power and the resurrection and there is assurance in the power of the return. It was fuel for the disciples' life after Jesus ascended. They knew the character of God, that he was good and that he keeps his promises. And they longed to see the day that he would return and were assured that it was approaching. And even through powerful prayer, even through Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes, all that that I just mentioned a minute ago, that is only a glimpse of what is to come. A signpost pointing forward to the day of Christ's return. For now we see as in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be consistent in prayer. Over the last, I don't know, maybe year, the return of Jesus was not a forefront thought in my mind. But as it has been more prevalent through the people I've been around and studies, et cetera, and just, I think, God highlighting it, for me, I've felt a growing feeling similar to that of a kid on Christmas Eve. Anticipating the joy of what is to come. So as we move into communion, we're going to uh, just do our normal reflection thing where you can you know, circle up with three people, you can reflect on your own, but I've got some questions for us, and then I'll come back up after, uh, before we lead us into worship. But for communion, you know, discuss this with some people around you. Feel free to move chairs around or whatever, but does the return of, does the return, wow, I put a 
typo in there. Does Christ's return stir up hope? That's me working this morning without coffee is what that is. Uh, does, the re- hope, does the return of Christ... <laughs> forget that one. <laughs> uh, does it stir up hope and joy in you or something else? When you think about the return of Christ, is hope and joy your default or is it fear or doubt or what? And then when was the last time that you rejoiced in the blessed hope of Christ's return? And then finally, have you allowed the circumstances of life to overshadow the joy of Christ and his return? So you guys go ahead, move chairs if you want, circle up with three, no more than four people so people have time to like share. Don't feel pressured to share. You can sit in a circle and say, no thanks, I just want to listen. Uh, But go ahead and do that now, and I'll pull us back up in just a few minutes.